God in heaven, we know you have been here today. You have met us in so many ways already. And God, we now want to hear from you and from your word. And so, Lord, we are listening and we trust that you will speak to us, uh, that you will change us by the power of your spirit and make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, I grew up in the American Baptist denomination. Uh, My dad is an American Baptist pastor. My grandfather was an American Baptist pastor. Um, I'm not an American Baptist pastor, so I guess that makes me a rebel. (laughs) But I grew up in the American Baptist denomination, and global missions was always an important characteristic of American Baptist life. And I grew up learning a lot about it, about it. And some of the most effective missionaries over the last 250 years that have been sent out from the United States have been American Baptists. Men like Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma and established churches that still exist to this day. There's a region in northeast India called Nagaland. And in Nagaland today, 90% of the people in Nagaland identify themselves as American Baptists. Uh, My roommate from seminary, his name was Dysok, he was uh, from Nagaland. There's a pastor here in Fort Wayne from Nagaland. He pastors at Fort Wayne Baptist Church right on Fairfield, just south of here. Uh, Valui Wengreso and his wife Margaret are pastors there at Fort Wayne Baptist. They're from Nagaland. Well, this past week, I came across this seal, the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society. American Baptist Foreign Mission Society. This seal was, um, identifies uh, American Baptist Foreign Mission Society. started in 1814. And on this seal, uh, what you see is there is uh, a bull standing in a field. And in front of the bull is a plow. Behind the bull is a smoking altar. And above is a banner that says... Ready for either. A bull standing in the field with a plow in front of him and a smoking altar behind him. And it says, ready for either. Ready to be hooked to that plow and to do the work of a bull. Or ready to be sacrificed on the altar. Ready for either. We are called to be ready for either. To give our lives over to Christ, to be ready to be used by him in whatever way that would be most useful to Christ and his kingdom. Ready for either. Because there was a group of American Baptists, men and women, 200 years ago, who were ready for either, there is now vital gospel-centered communities today in Burma and in Nagaland and all over the world. But this attitude, ready for either, didn't begin with American Baptists 200 years ago, did it? The resolve to be ready for either is just a pattern that they were following of those who had gone before them over the centuries. And this morning we're going to look at a man in the book of Acts that was ready for either, ready for service to Christ and ready to give up his life for Christ. 
The story that we're going to look at today is about one man's faithfulness and how one man's faithfulness served as a spark that enabled the fire of the gospel to spread all over the world. Today we're going to look at the story of Stephen's martyrdom found in Acts chapter 6 through 8. If you remember, uh, before Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples that they would be what? They would be what for him? His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, it has been months and possibly even years since Jesus gave that commission. But the followers of Jesus had all remained in Jerusalem. And up to that point in the book of Acts, the Christians had remained in Jerusalem, and there was no evidence that they had proclaimed Jesus to anyone other than Jewish people. We talked about Stephen a couple weeks ago when we looked at the great truth of the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And we're going to return to his story today and take a look at how God used his commitment and his suffering and his death for his glory. Just a quick reminder of who Stephen was. Uh, we know at the, uh, that as the early church was forming, one of the, the key characteristics of their life together was that they took care of one another. Um, Alan spoke today about how we as a church seek to ca- take care of one another and take care of others. Well, this was a part of the life of the early Christian community. And Luke tells us in Acts that among the Christian community, there was no one there who had any need. And so one of the things that developed very early in this Christian community was taking care of one another. And one of the things that developed was a feeding program for widows. Widows were some of the most vulnerable people in the world in that day. And so the church came around and made sure we need to take care of these widows who are among us. But over time, there were some widows who began to complain that they were being ignored. They weren't getting their fair share. You know, we often read these descriptions of the early church community, you know, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. You know, they met every day in their homes. They broke bread together. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And it sounds like this amazing experience. It sounds like something we'd all want to be a part of. And we kind of get nostalgic about the early Christian church. I want to tell you, the early Christian church happened to be made up of people. They happen to be made up of people, and people do ignore other people. And people are selfish, and people don't do what they should do. And it was no different in the early church. And so there was this arguing going on among these the widows and those uh, who were uh, doing this feeding program. And the apostles found themselves spending all this time on this feeding program. And so they chose seven men who would administer this program. And one of them was a man named Stephen. And Stephen, I am sure, gladly went about doing this work. He was ready to serve Christ and to serve others. He was ready to be hooked up to the plow and serve in whatever way Christ called him to do. But we also see in Acts that he had a passion and a gifting and a calling to preach. And so in his free time, Stephen would go out and preach. And Luke tells us that he did amazing miracles and that the wisdom of Stephen that came from the Spirit was so deep that no one could refute what he said. And as the story continues on in Acts chapter 6, because of his preaching, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem get angry, they get jealous, they begin speaking against him, and they bring false accusations against him, and they bring him to trial. 
And in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen's, uh, we find Stephen's response. I was going to say we find his defense, but he really doesn't defend himself at all, but he does respond to their charges. And uh, he didn't defend himself because I think Stephen knew what was going to happen. Uh, he had watched these same group of men crucify and kill the perfect righteous one. I think Stephen knew how this was going to end for him. And so he doesn't defend himself, but he does respond with a very long sermon. Uh, the book of Acts is filled with speeches, many different sermons, many different speeches that the apostles give. And Stephen's speech, his sermon in Acts chapter 7, is by far the longest speech in the entire book. And we're not going to look at all of it today. I read you all of Peter's sermon this week, but I'm not going to read all of Stephen's sermon today. Um, but in short, what Stephen does is he goes back and he retells a good portion of the history of Israel. Uh, he gives these religious leaders a Sunday school lesson. <laughs> okay, these people who are supposed to know the most about the Old Testament, the most about the scriptures, he teaches them the very basics. He goes back and he tells them about some of the men that God called to lead Israel, Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon. And he retells this history of Israel and he says that all of these men were sent by God and that all of these men in one way or another were rejected by God's people. And then at the end of the sermon, he turns it around on them, and he says, you are a part of this. Just like your forefathers rejected those that God sent, you have now rejected Jesus, the Messiah, the righteous one. Listen to what Stephen says in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Every time God has sent a prophet or a deliverer, the Jewish people rejected him. And the basic message of Stephen's sermon is, you are just like that. You are men who have uncircumcised hearts and ears. In other words, you are not a part of Israel. To be uncircumcised, to call someone uncircumcised, to say you are not even a part of the Jewish people. And so they hear this message, and they kill him. And a couple weeks ago, we heard about Stephen's incredible faith, about what he did when he was being martyred. While he was being stoned to death, he, he looks up and he sees heaven open and he sees Jesus standing there at the right hand of God the Father. And what does Stephen say? Do not hold this sin against them. He asks that those who are killing him, those who are causing his suffering, he says to them, let them not be responsible for their actions. He asks the heavenly judge not to judge them. It's exactly what his master Jesus did, right? Exactly what he did. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen follows the example of his master. Stephen was ready for either. I want to look at the results of Stephen's martyrdom. In the book of Acts, we see that God uses Stephen's martyrdom and his suffering and his death for some great purposes. Jesus called his disciples at the beginning to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And up to this point, the disciples 
the followers of Jesus, the 3,000 or so in Jerusalem at that time, they had stayed right there in Jerusalem. Well, the martyrdom of Stephen creates a crisis in the church. Stephen's actions set off a spark. The religious leaders in Jerusalem find out that Stephen and all those like him, they're going to be a problem for them, and they begin to persecute the church in Jerusalem. And so they begin to drag men and women off to prison. Most of the church there in Jerusalem then is either in prison or they scatter throughout the surrounding regions. So look at what happens in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, this place where God called them to be witnesses, they preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Throughout the next couple of chapters, Acts 8 through 10 and into 11, we see the church's ministry in these regions around Judea and Samaria. We read about how the church became witnesses to Jesus in those surrounding areas. Turn to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. And Luke brings up Stephen again. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. Luke tells us, verse 19, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen now traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks there also, telling them about the good news about the Lord Jesus. What's happening here? Because of Stephen's martyrdom, because of this crisis that caused the church to be scattered, they are now going to Jerusalem and Judea, and here in Luke chapter 11, now to the ends of the earth. They are now proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, all because of the persecution that broke out because of Stephen's boldness. Jesus is Lord over the church in seasons of suffering and persecution. It is this moment of crisis in the life of the church, a moment when it seemed as if darkness was winning, this moment when it seemed as if the church was losing. They were being imprisoned. They were being scattered. The thousands of men and women who had experienced this close-knit, tight community in Jerusalem, they are being scattered all over the place. They were no longer able to meet the needs of everyone among them because they were scattered. They were no longer a close community anymore. They were no longer able to do these things that had uh, created such a rich community in Jerusalem. It seemed as if their cause and their community and their church was lost. But it was this crisis, this suffering, that enabled the church to do what the church was called to do in the first place. So I want to talk today about suffering and the spread of the gospel and how these two things are related. In Stephen's story, in this event of his martyrdom, we see some important things that we learn about suffering and about the spread of the gospel. First of all, we see that suffering is often a consequence of proclaiming the gospel. 
In Jerusalem, the church was growing. It was becoming an influential group of people. And because of that, there was resistance. And the Bible over and over and over again tells us that we live in a dark world that is opposed to the truth. We live in a dark world that is opposed to the light of the gospel. And so if we are going to be faithful to the gospel, then suffering is not something that should come to as a surprise to us, but something that we should anticipate and even prepare for. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house a demon, how much more will they malign those in the household? 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says this. This is an incredibly convicting verse for us, or at least it should be. It says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I read recently a story about a group of pastors led by Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a man who smuggled Bibles into uh, communist countries in the 60s and 70s and 80s. He got the nickname God Smuggler, and eventually he was leading a group of pastors in, in Hungary. And Brother Andrew was sitting in Budapest, Hungary with a dozen pastors of that city, and he was teaching from the scriptures. And in walked an old friend of his who had recently been imprisoned in Romania and had been released from prison. When this man walked in, Brother Andrew stopped teaching, and he knew it was time for them to listen to this pastor that had just been released from prison. After a long pause, the Romanian pastor said, Brother Andrew, are there any of your pastors here who are in prison? No, Andrew replied. Why not? The pastor asked. And Andrew thought for a moment and said, I think it must be because we do not take advantage of all the opportunities that God gives to us. And then came the most difficult question. The Romanian pastor said, Andrew, what do you do with 2 Timothy 3.12? And Brother Andrew opened his Bible and turned to the text and read aloud, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Andrew closed the Bible slowly and said, Brother, please forgive us. We do nothing with this verse. In American Christianity, we have made Christian faith so much about living some type of middle-class morality. And we have set up these internal rules that if you look a certain way, and if you act a certain way, and if you keep up those appearances, you can come and you can think that you're okay. And we've so domesticated the gospel in this way that 2 Timothy 3.12, I think, means nothing to us. And if I'm pointing fingers at anyone at all right now, I'm pointing them at myself. Suffering is a consequence of proclaiming the gospel. And we have not taken advantage of all of the opportunities that God has given to us to proclaim the gospel. And so we often do not experience the consequences. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are we ready for either? Suffering is a consequence of faithfulness to the gospel. Secondly, suffering is an opportunity. 
It is an opportunity to live a life that looks like the life of Jesus. For Stephen, the fear of suffering and death was no longer his master. Instead, the moment of his greatest suffering, the moment of his death, became one more opportunity for him to reflect the life of his master. One more way to live like Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. Lived like Jesus as he was dying. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. Satan's design for suffering and death is that it would lead us to hopelessness and despair. When he saw what was happening in Jerusalem, he led the Jerusalem leaders and Paul to begin to, uh, to persecute these believers, to scatter them, to put them in prison, to cause them to lose hope and to fear. But for the follower of Jesus, for the one who is truly ready for either, we know that our suffering in this life is temporary, that glory with Christ in eternity is forever. And for those who are ready for either, we know that death does not have to have the last say because it has been conquered by Christ, and we do not need to fear it. And so every moment of our life, even the moment of our death, can become an opportunity for us to live a life that looks like Jesus. Third, suffering in the gospel. Throughout the history of the church, we've seen over and over again that suffering and persecution become a catalyst for the gospel. We saw this in Stephen's martyrdom. Because of Stephen's martyrdom, the church began to spread throughout Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. Jesus is Lord over the suffering and persecution of his church. It does not happen outside of his control. What man intends for evil, God intends for... This was Joseph's response way back in Genesis when his brothers, uh, when he suffered at the hands, suffered unjustly at the hands of his brothers. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. If you ever have, or if you ever will, have the privilege of suffering for the gospel, you can be confident that God will use that suffering for good in one way or another. Over and over again throughout church history, we see that persecution and suffering has caused the church to grow, certainly numerically, but also deeper into Christ. 1,800 years ago, one of the great early evangelists named Tertullian said, We Christians multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. And then 200 years later, St. Jerome, a great early pastor of the church, said, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding blood, by its own blood, not the blood of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made the church grow, and martyrdoms have crowned it. Persecution and suffering are things that man intends for evil, but that God intends for good. God uses it. For his purposes. Are we ready for either? I've spoken a lot about persecution and suffering today, and I want to make it clear that suffering and persecution are not the goal. Giving glory to God is the goal. 
In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says that Paul, after he had his Damascus Road experience, after he'd become a believer, it says that the persecution stopped in Judea and Galilee and Samaria and Jerusalem. And Acts 9, 31 says that the church enjoyed a time of peace, and it grew in strength and in numbers, and the believers walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort and power of the Spirit. Persecution is not something that we should seek. We do not seek to be persecuted. We seek to be faithful at every opportunity. We are ready for either. God desires that you and I be faithful in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. In this time, in this time now of relative peace as a church in the USA... As relative peace, we need to make sure that our comfort and our peace does not make us lazy and apathetic, but that we take it as an opportunity to hitch ourselves up to the plow and do the work that God has called us to do in this time and in this place. But we also know and we feel the growing slander and ridicule against Christ in the church growing all around us, and we need to anticipate it and to be ready for it. We must be sure that the comfort and the privilege that we enjoy now does not lead us to become lazy in the mission that God has entrusted to us as his church. So whether in a time of persecution or in a time of peace, we are called to be faithful. We are called to be ready for either. In whatever moment or circumstance you find yourself in, in what way are you, off, are you offering yourselves fully to Christ? Are you ready for either? 200 years ago, there was a group of American Baptists who claimed that their creed was ready for either. But we know that that attitude goes back further than that into the lives of many millions of people who have quietly and in unknown ways have given themselves fully to Christ. We know that ready for either would have been the creed for Stephen. He was ready for either. The truth is this story goes back even further than that. It goes back to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who showed us what it was like to be ready for either. He humbled himself, took on flesh, and became a servant to us. Showed us what it was like to serve others by kneeling on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples. By walking alongside those who are mourning, by reaching out to those who are hurting and afflicted. And then on that night, before his crucifixion, when he kneeled in the garden and he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Father, for your children, I am ready for either. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that he showed us in his life what it means to live faithfully in every circumstance. In times and seasons where the world uh, believed he was the greatest in the world, the 
followed after him hard and where thousands were gathering just to hear the wisdom that came from his lips. And God also in seasons when those same crowds spit on him and cheered while he was whipped and watched as he was crucified. We thank you for his life given for us. We thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, we ask that we would follow his example and the example of Stephen and the example of Tertullian and of Jerome, the example of millions of men and women with unknown names who quietly lived faithfully to you and gave their whole life for you. We pray, God, that you would make us like them, that we would be faithful in whatever circumstance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.